Hi, and thanks for joining the Think for Yourself podcast. Today's episode is the audio portion of a webinar conversation that Dr. Mansharmani hosted on June 23rd, 2021 with Kevin Zinger. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, well, thanks everybody for joining. I am uh, really excited to have a, uh, a friend, uh, Kevin Zinger, join us here today. Kevin is an entrepreneur, and I actually had the pleasure of getting to know Kevin and his family. Jeez, Kevin, what's it been? probably 10 years ago <laughs> at, at tailgates, yes, at football at tailgates yeah. uh, via a common friend who's, who's unfortunately passed away, David Swenson. Uh, but uh, so Kevin and I have had this Yale connection for, for quite a while. And I've even had the chance to profile some of Kevin's work in my book, which we'll come back to. Uh, but before we get started, let me, uh, let me do my traditional advertising that I run through uh, for some of the replays, and then uh, we'll get started here. So um, last week I had Diane Hessen, whose book was just released yesterday called Our Common Ground, talked about US political polarization and sort of how to overcome it. And in fact, that there is a lot more common ground, a lot more hope than we had thought. Uh, before that, we had uh, Hakeem and his wife, Rushan talking about the Uyghur uh, situation in China. They're two of the leading dissidents. Uh, he just wrote a book called Menace. Uh, this has gotten the attention of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Secretary Blinken's tweeted about Rushan's sister. Um, this is getting a lot of attention and will continue to get more attention about what's happening in China. Uh, Bjorn Lomborg started uh, us off before that in May uh, with false alarm. Not a climate denier, as some people accuse him of being, but more just saying, hey, we need not be alarmist that there are, in fact, solutions. And in fact, one of his ideas was we need to spend more time thinking about innovation and reorganizing manufacturing, reorganizing all the things we do. And, and Kevin's actually doing that. So that'll be fun part of the conversation today. Had Grant Williams before, uh, financial market commentator, economist, etc. Chad Foster, who had written a book about what it's like to go blind in your 20s. I mean, he had vision for 20 years of his life and then went blind. Uh, so uh, a fascinating story, inspirational, uh, obviously twists and turns, but uh, a really interesting story. Uh, Mike Rogers, former congressman from Michigan, uh, talked to us about 5G surveillance technology and what the Chinese are doing with Huawei, et cetera. He was former chair of the House Permanent Select Committee of Intelligence. Um, and he was the guy who led the US charge against Huawei. So he went and talked to the Canadians, the Brits, Aussies, and the New Zealand folks and said, hey, listen, we got to stick together on this. Um, and so had him. Um, and then, of course, I want to, you know, advertise the book, <laughs> Think for Yourself, uh, which on page 139 and 140 profiles uh, under Football Footprints and the Future, a section about Kevin. Uh, so I am super excited to have Kevin here. Kevin, thanks for joining me. Hey, no, thanks, uh, Vikram. It's uh, it's my pleasure and, and my honor to be on this, and it's, uh, it's good to see you doing this. You know, yeah, this look, is I, super I, I, interesting guests. Uh, yeah, you know, it's thanks, a, it, for, what, thanks for doing it. What's really fun, Kevin, the whole point of this webinar series, as you and I, I think I told you very briefly, was is really to just diversify people's thinking and just go where there's interesting ideas with interesting people doing interesting things. So, you know, um, hence, hence the, the wide variety, if you will. But um, so Kevin, let's talk about your background. So you're obviously uh, CEO, founder, uh, lead inventor of Divergent uh, 3D and Singer, the automotive company. But you didn't start off as an auto guy. You started off as a finance guy after college. And before that, you were a football guy. But, you know, tell us a little bit about where you grew up. I think it was Ohio and uh, and sort of the path you took sort of. Did you think you'd be this leading cutting edge entrepreneur in the automotive space, reinventing manufacturing when you were running around the playground there in Ohio? No. Uh, and I've never thought of myself honestly, as any particular type of person following any particular pathway, uh, I've always been what I think I can very accurately and honestly say uh, is uh, that I've been uh, a, a very curious person across a broad array of areas and that I've been an autodidact in the sense that uh, I've learned multiple languages. I've uh, uh, studied everything from molecular biophysics and biochemistry at Yale to going to Yale Law School to uh, then later on studying uh, 
electrical engineering and computer science at uh, ASU, uh, Arizona State. So I've I've always thought that as long as a person had a solid basis in maths and sciences, which I think everybody that's educated should have, and, and there's no reason why they can't have it if it's properly taught, that you can teach yourself uh, anything. And if you have a certain level of confidence and lack of fear, yeah. you can try almost anything. But going back to my background, I grew, uh, I was uh, born in 1959 in Cleveland, Ohio. My parents uh, both came from uh, very working class backgrounds. My mother from a small uh, coal mining town uh, that bordered in, in Ohio, but it bordered Wheeling, West Virginia, a company uh, town, uh, and uh, you know, came from a coal mining family that had been there for a long time meeting coal miners, not owning coal mines. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Hannah Coal Company owned the, owned the town and, and the mine. And okay. uh, my father grew up in a uh, uh, single parent, uh, mom household, uh, you know, a family that had broken up during the depression. And, and uh, she, my grandmother on my dad's side worked in a, a hanger factory, painting hangers almost un until, uh, you know, actually into her 80s, surprisingly. Yeah, wow. And uh, uh, I grew up and I certainly didn't think about uh, becoming an entrepreneur or building a business or doing any of that. I was the youngest of five. I had two older brothers who were into cars, car mechanics, race car mechanics, race car right. builders. Uh, you know, I was uh, in a very working class background, you know, mm -hmm. early on. Uh, somehow I began reading very young. Probably it's because I had my brothers and sisters were considerably older than me. And that, you know, that reading very young and, and having a Carnegie library at the end of my street, you know, mm. caused me at an early age to start to read an enormous amount. I mean, I was even at an early age reading three plus books a week and, uh, awesome. Yeah. You know, later on, there were things like I, I, you know, for a while, I was fascinated with uh, John von Neumann uh, and, you know, his early work on universal constructors and computing. Mm -hmm. And I was reading all of these things without any thought that this had some practical application more that it I was living in a world of ideas. Yeah. Uh, you know, in high school, I was, uh, you know, multiple time all Ohio football player. I was recruited by a number of different leagues at the time. Yale was still a division one school, division one football <laughs> school. Uh, you know, it had recently had some people who had gone on to pro football and were, uh, successful pro players. And the coach at that time, Carm Coza, who's yeah. you know, ESPN top 100 all time coach came and recruited me and said, you, know, you can never tell what happens in football. You can get hurt. Other things can happen. You get an Ivy League education and, you know, that will do you uh, well. Yeah. And I ended up being an All-American football player in college and, uh, uh, you know, grew intellectually there. Uh, you know, I then totally out of happenstance and I had yeah, I had never had a summer job in a white collar uh, environment. So I roughnecked and worked Derrick's on offshore oil rig out of uh, Morgan City, Louisiana uh, uh, for two of my summers, you know, through Yale alums, because we needed to, uh, in my family, we needed to work in the summer, even if I wasn't uh, really paying for Yale, you needed to make money for food and to support yourself. And I spent uh, a summer also working actually on, on World Trade Center number seven, which at the time was the Vista Horizon Hotel building that uh, yep. uh, I was in the uh, Mason Tenders Union working for Morse Diesel, which was the general contractor there. So, you know, coming out of college, I knew I wanted to do something other than play football. Uh, Interesting. Why is that, Kevin? I mean, you were great at football. So why not keep playing football? Sure. I think what, you know, when you, you know, you know, I grew up in a very blue collar context where, you know, my parents met 
they're both were both they both passed away, but we're both veterans of World War II. And you know, today you'd say, you know, my dad had a severe case of PTSD. So there was uh, uh, not I don't want to get into it, but there was probably more chaos in the home. And uh, you know, football was something where if you have a chip on your shoulder, you can. Uh, you know, to cut to the chase, you know, you can be very violent within a set of rules and, you know, get rid of that aggression. Yep. And probably by the end of college, the idea of, you know, putting a helmet on and running around and hurting people, which is what you do when you play defense. Huh. Uh, you know, I had, uh, I don't mean to sound too high polluting, but I had evolved past that. Okay. Got it. No, 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 that's great. Then you went to finance and then found your way into business. So I actually went to Yale Law School. Well, sorry, law school then to finance, right? Yeah. So I, you know, I, by happenstance, I met the dean of Yale Law School, Guido Calabresi. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Guido said to me, uh, Kevin, have you ever thought of going to law school? And I had never thought of going to law school. And he said, well, Yale's law school is not law school. It's the uh, Ecole Normale Superior of, uh, uh, of American schools. And I was like, what is he talking about? And then he said, come here. There are only four required courses. They're uh, uh, credit fail in uh, your first semester. And then you can study anything you want. I'm the dean and study anything you want in any of the schools. Then. And I thought, wow, that sounded interesting. And so I ended up doing that. Uh, one summer I spent at Goldman Sachs in their M&A department, just being an M&A summer associate. Mm -hmm. uh, but what happened was I was also an editor of the Yale Law Journal. And I, I didn't know anything about these things. I just tried different things. And uh, uh, one of both Guido Calabresi and another professor, uh, uh, Burke Marshall, who had been the assistant attorney general for civil rights under Kennedy, uh, you know, it had really been, you know, the prime mover of the, you know, the 64 civil rights uh, legislation and helped drafting it. Uh, you know, they both said, you know, no matter what you do, you've had this education, you should spend a year clerking for a judge. And I thought, okay, I'll clerk for that judge and then I'll go back to Goldman Sachs. I clerked for a judge, Gerhard Gazelle, who was assigned the Iran-Contra cases, if you remember mm -hmm. Ali North. And so I ended up not knowing anything about anything, uh, uh, having top secret and all the sensitive compartmented information clearances and seeing really how our defense intelligence and, and, uh, uh, and foreign intelligence networks work and what was going on. And at the end of this very intensive one-year clerkship where the judge, instead of taking two clerks, he would only take one clerk each year and then work very intensively. With them, I said, okay, judge, I'm going to go back. Uh, and I think I'm gonna take this job at Goldman Sachs. And he said, no, you should be a trial lawyer for a couple of years and learn what that's like to stand up in front of a jury and argue a case. And I said, Judge, I'm one year out of uh, out of uh, Yale uh, law school. How would I do that? And he literally picked up the phone and called uh, Rudolph Giuliani, who now has a yeah. you know current kind of <laughs> a colorful image. At that time, was the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. And my judge talked to him. And the next thing I knew, I was up in New York talking to Rudy and Rudy hired me. And uh, I spent three years trying cases, you know, oh, including sort of, know that. including, you know, U.S. versus GAF Corporation, which was the initial, uh, uh, you know, one of the big Wall Street uh, Ivan Bosky related insider trading cases. Actually, it was the first to actually go to trial. Uh, and I was successful in all of my uh, you know, top count convictions in all of my cases. And at the end of this, I knew I didn't want to either be a prosecutor or a white collar criminal lawyer, although I was good at it. Uh, uh, and you know, I had tried cases that involved very high profile lawyers, uh, mm -hmm. like Lawrence Tribe. My, my very first oral argument had Lawrence Tribe on the other side of it. I tried cases against people like Arthur Lyman, who oh, yeah. at the time was probably considered one of the you know top lawyers. He yeah. told the New York Times, you know, I still have a little clipping that uh, my jury addresses were the best that he'd ever seen a government lawyer make. So I had, you know, I, I was oh, fun. Yeah, I was good at it. But what happened then is I, I didn't want to do that. 
uh, as a lifetime. And I went back to talk uh, to the people at Goldman Sachs and Lyman, when uh, Arthur Lyman, this lawyer, defense lawyer, high, very pro, high, very pro, was also a corporate lawyer, which at the time you, you know, lawyers were more broad gauged. He said, hey, you know, if you're going back to Goldman Sachs, you should talk to the people who are running it. I said, hey, I was a summer associate, right? I'd come back as a, you know, first year associate. And he picked up the phone and called uh, Bob Rubin. And so I met with Bob Rubin and Steve Friedman, who were the co-heads of the firm at that time. And uh, at first I thought I had lost the job because they said, it doesn't make sense for you to be a, uh, an associate in the M&A department in New York. But they then called up uh, a man, John Thornton, who was running the international operations of Goldman yep. out of London. Now, later he was the president of Goldman and chairman of Brookings yep. and said, go work for this guy. And so I started out uh, actually as an executive director working awesome. for John Thornton. And I did that. But to get to the rest of it, you know, I worked uh, I worked doing technology telecom related work. Yep. Early work in China, Europe, the U.S., you know, and, uh, you know, some of the people I heard at the time, you know, Jonathan Nee, who's, you know, been an author of a bunch of books and is a, you know, senior partner at Evercore. He yep. was a, you know, a junior associate I hired at that one time. Uh, Joe Ravitch, who, uh, you know, runs, uh, you know, Rain, which is a merchant bank uh, with about, you know, 500 uh, bankers now focused on tech technology telecom he was a you know the you know junior associate that uh, that I hired so you know it it was fun it was interesting I did probably a half dozen deals directly uh, yep. on one side of the table the other with Rupert Murdoch but I looked at that and said uh, and probably it's because I came from a background where you didn't know the limits because nobody ever did anything you know that related to it in my family I was yep. like okay I want to actually have my own company. Yep. not do this. And so I went through, uh, you know, series of, uh, you know, of companies that, you know, led up to my co-founding uh, EV, uh, Carco and, and battery yep. company. Yep. Uh, and then that company led up to my, my current. current company. So good. No, that's, that's awesome. That's really it. And, and that involved me living in Europe, living in Asia, living in China, living in the U.S. Yep. So what I, that's awesome, Kevin. That's great background because it sort of helps connect the dots of what makes you think and sort of the some of the trajectory. But for those that don't know what Kevin's doing now, I'm going to share some slides here that illustrate a little bit of what Kevin's been up to. Um, and Kevin, I'm going to let you talk to him. But there's really two companies you've got going on right now, which is Zinger and uh, and Divergent 3D. Um, and you know, but just so folks understand what we're talking about, this is Kevin's latest sort of or latest and greatest product, right? I think that's sort of the way to describe this, Kevin. This is the Zinger 21, is that right? Uh, 21C, but what, what I would say is to to kind of understand it and take a, a step back. Yep. When I, uh, yeah, I set up, I'd say going back to 2006-ish, back at a time when you had a new set of EV companies, uh, you know, starting and we're at a nascent stage like Tesla with that initial Roadster vehicle. You know, those EVs were literally using microelectronics format cylindrical battery cells, 18650 cells, thousands of them hand wired together. Yep. And they were not designed for uh, vehicle industrial use. They were purpose built. The cell wasn't the module pack thermal management battery management system. Okay. And I had put together uh, a team uh, and entered into a joint venture uh, with uh, uh, China's largest state-owned rechargeable battery company, Tianjin Lisha. Uh, and they're one of the main suppliers of microelectronics batteries to uh, lithium battery, ion batteries, rechargeable batteries to Apple, for example. Yep. But I looked at that and said, you know, there's going to be a scaling of this industry. And this was probably a decade before, you know, uh, Tesla's Gigafactory or thinking about that. But I looked and said, the key cost driver obviously is, you know, cell and module cost for EVs and put together a Western design team designed, you know, uh, really the first industrialized, certainly in China, uh, EV battery cell. 
yep. and module pack thermal management, battery management system. And by 2010, that was in a joint venture, uh, you know, that was a, a, an EV battery uh, manufacturing mega factory, million square foot uh, scale, first real scale in China battery manufacturing uh, a facility purpose built for uh, EVs and was part of the industrialization scale up of uh, that you now see in China of EVs. And at that time, as I was doing this, uh, I became very aware of life cycle assessment. So exam for example, life cycle assessment means that, yep, means that you not only look at whether a vehicle has a tailpipe or not, uh, but you look and go, you know, there are extractive emissions to mining, whatever goes in a vehicle, there are processing emissions when you process it, then you manufacture it, then it has a certain mass efficiency that requires more or less generation of fuels or electricity or however it's powered. And then there's an endpoint or the design endpoint or the durability endpoint, and then you have to do something. And at the end of it, do you mine more material to create something else? Do you just throw this thing away? You know, can you use that material again? And all of a sudden I realized because I did real analysis, I took the Green Argon Labs model, which is the US model from 1997. It's really the standard model used for this assessment. Looked at it and all of a sudden I realized that the battery factory that I had set up in China was generating about 150 kilograms per kilowatt hour of battery produced. And what that means is if you took an average Tesla today, for example, you know, against a sort of standard internal combustion engine vehicle, if the battery facility is putting out, you know, that kind of CO2 emissions during that process, then it, you know, it probably is equivalent to driving a normal internal combustion engine vehicle for about 170,000 to 200,000 kilometers yep. before, you know, you have, you know, equal CO2 emissions to, yeah. Yeah. to what that EV is born with. And I looked at that and said, okay, I need to really intensively in this next phase of my life, look at how you create mass efficiency and closed looping of materials yep. in uh, large scale manufacture. Yep. And so this vehicle was simply a technology demonstrator that I later had investors in my main technology company, Divergent Technologies, yep. you know, which is developed a complete digital manufacturing platform, <laughs> the entire yep. software hardware stack yep. to generate mass efficient structures that can be closed loop meaning you don't need to remine materials. You simply re-atomize these structures and create a new structure at the end of their design life, right? Yep. yep. Uh, you know, we were doing, you know, these structures, this vehicle, my main business, you know, has a number of the major automakers and you'll see in the next year, vehicles coming out with our structures uh, in them, in production cars, volume production cars. Uh, but my real focus at the start was, you know, Sorry. how you, uh, you know, and that's the rear frame of that vehicle. And that's a yeah. you know, modular yeah. production facility in, in the back. You know, that's, that's that car on the track. You know, it's the world's most advanced production car. It's the world's fastest production car, most power dense, you know, best power to weight uh, ratio, et cetera. And it's a AI platform generated structure that meets all of the auto requirements, crash durability, et cetera. Uh, it's you know, generated in a fraction of the time using high-performance computing and AI. It's printed using uh, uh, our own printer design that prints alloys that we have also purpose-built for different applications, so metal alloys does that in three dimensions. And then all of the assembly features are designed into the structure so that those can be in a design agnostic way automatically assembled. So yep. you have a full system that generates a fully computationally engineered structure, prints it with purpose-built materials and then assembles it. And it's like a Mac desktop publishing system for industrial structures. The system doesn't, as a Mac desktop publishing system, doesn't care whether it's printing a comic book or a Bible. This doesn't care whether it's printing a hypercar or an SUV or a drone. None yeah. of the hardware, none of its configuration changes. It's on a tiny footprint. 
and it creates structures more optimized than any human group of engineers could ever uh, engineer. And so that represents about currently about 450 uh, patent filings across that entire system. Uh, you know, software generation. It's all. It's basically an entire software system. But the, you know, software for generating, uh, software and hardware for uh, printing, software and hardware for assembling. That represents about 450 uh, Patent. uh, patents with the first 100 or so uh, foundational patents already uh, issued. Yeah. So, Kevin, really quickly, let's just run through these pictures and you can describe them very briefly sure. if you don't mind. So this is the this is the manufacturing or this is the assembly. What is this that I'm looking at right here? Uh, that's a, you know, the world's first real industrial digital factory. Yep. Uh, in the back where you see those blue LEDs, that is a uh, a. Uh, printing module in a climate controlled room. So you have 10 printers. And once you've used high performance computing and literally you're taking eight months of siloed engineering in a major car company and uh, compressing that into a day or two of high performance computing. Yep. You're then generating that structure, printing it in that one room. And then yep. those structures come out and in this uh, assembly cell, you assemble that full uh, structure. I mean, we, we probably should have done a, you know, shown you a short assembly video, but you assemble that full structure. So, so what you see there can assemble up to 150,000, depends on the vehicle and the number of components in the structure, but it can assemble up to 150,000 vehicle structures. So imagine, you know, you're right, doing right optimized right. Lego blocks with purpose-built materials. Yep. This and all of the assembly features are in the Lego blocks, not in the assembler. Yep. Uh, and it's done with all laser camera optics. Uh, so, you know, all of this is assembled uh, together in that front cell. It's printed in the cell in the back. And to scale, you simply add cells. And Kevin, so you said 150,000. That's per year. So we're talking about what, yes. seven, eight minutes of a, 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 a product? I'd say for, you know, for the frame of the vehicle. So say you have a, an EV that has a, uh, you know, a skateboard chassis to do the front and rear subframe uh, of it. And obviously that's a hybrid vehicle with EV motors and an uh, internal combustion engine uh, uh, in, in the yep. middle. But if you go back to the slide that shows the factory, please. Yep. So, uh, you know, you're obviously printing those structures, then those structures on an AGV, on a mobile robot come out. And uh, this assembly cell, which is replacing, you know, it's about 20 meters uh, wide. It's replacing, you know, a half mile long assembly line with hundreds of robots, you know, purpose-built welding equipment, purpose-built fixturing for a given model. You know, this is a universal assembler that's in a 20, meter wide space that will assemble anything from a hypercar to a battery electric SUV to a drone and Perfect. do it without any reconfiguration or change in, uh, in the hardware. It's just different yep. data flowing through it. So, yeah. you know, that is, that is a full digital production facility as far as so this is the, my this knowledge. Is the it's, it's the only one on the planet and it's probably five plus years ahead of anyone even starting to do something like this. Yep. And it has patents at the system level and then domain level patents across each of these technologies. Yep. Um, what's fascinating is you're, I mean, you're using a car to demonstrate that you can reinvent manufacturing, which is the part that's really exciting here. So let me just flip forward because one of the things that I loved about your story, Kevin, is that also the artificial intelligence to redesign things based upon ultimate objectives or, or sort of needs. Right. So here's the requirement. We need this much strength, this much torque capability of, you know, of being able to handle whatever the the I'm, I'm not a physicist, but I know there are pressures and there are sort of design requirements. Um, something when I look at something like this, it looks to me like this is almost biologically inspired. Right. Talk to well, me. About I'd the say there's no stuff. there's no there's no, ins, you know, you know, the machine is not thinking about biological uh, inspiration or biologic inspiration. It is simply thinking about how to, given a set of constraints, and you need to use the full set of constraints. So currently, when people are talking about the digitalization of manufacturing, 
if you don't create a full DNOVO architecture for the system, it's like trying to digitalize a typewriter, right? If you remember, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, digitalization meant adding two lines of memory to a typewriter. That is not Mac desktop publishing. You needed to create a completely new architecture, integrating a completely new set of technologies. When you do that, and you're making the transition, which I think it may be the single biggest transition uh, in, you know, our, you know, for our planet. And I don't think that there is a clean energy transition without a clean manufacturing transition. Mm -hmm. the, this is going to be a transition from analog to true digital manufacturing. And when you look at that, you're taking all of the hard and soft constraints that get put into the machine. So imagine you have a user interface, you have a very small team. It's probably, you know, instead of dozens of engineers, it's a single CAD, CAE engineer that puts in what the design space is within which the machine, and I'm simplifying it, within which the machine is going to uh, generate a structure. Mm -hmm. And then you're putting in the hard and soft constraints you know, everything from load cases for things like, you know, durability to uh, crash to cost requirements, stiffness requirements, et cetera. And, and also because the materials you choose and the machines that print them and the rate and cost with which they do that, and the same thing with how many parts the machine breaks they structure into to assemble them and the sequence, very, very many things. The machine upfront needs to generate that full package. Yep. So you're generating using high performance computing that full package. And then unlike current manufacturing where you're taking a stamping tool, like a you know cookie cutter that's taking the same gauge of sheet steel or aluminum alloy or steel alloy, and simply in two dimensions, you know, uh, you know, stamping that, you know, or pouring something into a casting mold. The machine is designing things in three dimensions. Like nature is brutally competing for material and energy efficiency and survival. The algorithms plus AI, you know, AI really to cut off, you know, a lot of the, you know, useless branching alternatives and also to come up with some novel solutions. That is generating a structure in three dimensions, only putting material where it's needed, like nature does. Yep. And that generates something which looks biologic, not because that was the intent of the system, but the fact that uh, mass efficiency is the biologic driver for yep. creating structure. And so, if you were to actually look at this entire system, this entire system, because it's a system of efficiency and resiliency, has to de deal with biologic. Meaning, if you looked at a, an alpine meadow, you would see very diverse structures, flora and fauna, but all trying to achieve within their niche environment, mass efficiency and survivability. And you're simply putting in inputs that are that environment for these structures. And yep. the machine is generating in three dimensions that structure with a purpose-built material. That's called dematerialization or mass efficiency. The second thing is like that mountain meadow, you want to not have to, from the outside, keep bringing in materials, but you want to close loop those materials. So yep. these materials are designed so that at the end of their life, they are simply re-atomized, turned back into a printable powder and reprinted as a new structure. So the life cycle phases that have to do with mining, extractive emissions, and with uh, processing emissions disappear. Uh, obviously in the future, as we scale, mining emissions, if we scaled without these systems like this, Mining emissions alone would destroy the planet in an accelerated sure. way with our current green revolution plans. Sure. Where so we don't take into account manufacturing. So Kevin, just help us understand the magnitude of the dematerialization that occurs because of this. So here's a GE bracket. 
on the I think on the right and left is the one that you guys I think designed. But yeah, General Electric has an aerospace bracket that they use as a benchmark for optimizing structure. And out of that GE bracket, we took out over 92% of the mass. What, what I would say in general, when you're looking at this, uh, you know, our system for vehicles is taking out 20 to 80% of the mass. So the bracket and it, and it does left. that not only it does that not only by optimizing a single structure, but imagine you have something like an EV motor or you know I have I have patents around uh, going back ten plus years around integrating battery cells uh, into the structure of the vehicle. Imagine yep. that uh, you know taking the EV motor as an example, it has a housing around it, it has bracketry. It has uh, channels for electronics and uh, cooling. All of those are different components added together around the core functionality, the stator rotor of the motor. Yep. And then you have structure that is attached to this actual you know, craft performance structure of the vehicle. Imagine you just take the stator rotor and instead of having, you do away with the housing, you do away with bracketing, you do, you do away with all of those channels, and you simply grow structure around it, you know, there you're taking away, you know, a very significant amount of mass. And that has a cascading impact on the spec of what that motor needs to be, battery cell range, et cetera. And that's what I mean by the cascading impact yep. of the initial mass efficiency of structures. Yep. How you design them, how you build them, and whether you can close loop the materials in the end. Yep. So um, I want to uh, I want to quickly get through the rest of these slides here, Kevin. Sure. So one one thing, the inspiration here was innovation of small teams could do really cool things. And I know you've talked about Lockheed Martin and Skunk Works. Uh, we got a picture here that you used in a in a prior talk, which I thought was fascinating. And this is the uh, Lockheed SR seventy one from uh, their Skunk Works production on the left, and that inspired uh, inspired you a little bit, I think, right? Yes, I mean, the, what I would say is, um, uh, if you ever want to watch something cool, uh, the History Channel, maybe two years ago, based on a bunch of declassified documents, uh, had something called Secret of the Skies, which was about the original uh, skunk works. So once the U-2 was shot down, and which also came from the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works in the mid-50s, yep. they had to design a new plane, which for decades would be designed, you know, looking forward decades to be able to outrun any Soviet missile system. So Kelly Johnson, yep. I think he may have been named the, you know, top aerospace engineer of the 20th uh, century. Kelly Johnson had created something within Lockheed Martin during the uh, Cold War. And he ran that using a certain set of principles and that plane, which the Soviets were never able to create a missile or another plane, as a matter of fact, still that plane is the, uh, the fastest, highest flying plane ever created, right? That was created in a period of about three to four years in the late 50s, early 60s by a team, which is probably 150th, 150th, you know, one divided by 50. Yep. Uh, size of what a modern team would be like that would try to do that project. And that would be a multi-decade project. Kelly Johnson, if you ever want to read a really cool book, his memoir oh, is yeah. called More Than My Share of It All by Kelly Johnson. <laughs> he has how he actually built Skunk Works. I mean, it went away, sort of won the Cold War. Well, actually, before the Cold War ended, because you couldn't get people to, within a corporation, actually work in you know, an environment where, you know, one of his rules is take 10% of what the corporation allows you to hire, you know, and never add a person above that. And huh. so he would take a small multidisciplinary team, put them all in one building, which by the way, we have about 130 engineers and scientists here. They're all in one building. They're across all the different domains. You have everything from R&D to production to testing all in one building, which is the same thing we have here in, in LA. And then you have somebody running it like 
myself in this case, who immediately can make time, cost, uh, 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 performance, trade-off decisions almost immediately. Decisions, you know, I make a couple of decisions a week that each one of which within a larger company might take six months. Yep. And that is, that is the way you do this compressed development. That's the way they created, I mean, there were probably a half dozen fundamental breakthroughs with the SR-71 yep. that needed to be made in a three-year period of time. Technologies never created, and it resulted in that plane. When I was a little kid, I, I was obsessed by that. I was yep. obsessed by Kelly Johnson. I was obsessed by uh, 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 John von Neumann, you know, and, and the idea that you could use computing power to do a universal constructor. And yep. so that's the that's the inspiration there for this business and these vehicles. Well, interesting. Let me take a little pause, Kevin. Uh, you, you've given us a book recommendation. The, the other thing I often seek from my guests is a, uh, a movie recommendation. Is there a movie uh, or miniseries that you'd recommend to folks? You've, got, you've given us a good book recommendation, but how about a movie? Well, uh, I, I... Or your favorite movie. I, I would <laughs> say, here's, here's what I would say. There's a, the very first science series ever. It was on the BBC. It was a very personal uh, presentation. It was done by Jacob Bronowski. It was called The Ascent of Man. Uh, Jason, Jacob Bronowski, I would say, is one of the all-time Renaissance combinations of uh, intelligence. Uh, as I said, 13-part series broadcast in 1974, really was the start of all science uh, broadcasts. Mm -hmm. and. You know, I still watch it today. I still recommend it to people that come into the company. And fundamentally, he goes back and, and says, how ha have human ideas linked to technology lifted man stage after stage after stage in the ascent of man. civilization and the ascent of what man can accomplish? And yeah. he said in each of these key transition points, uh, there is some collection of inventions that are synthesized into a system. And that makes a you know, step change in man's ability to express ideas in the physical world. So he says, you know, nature is part of the physical world. It's part of the landscape. Man envisions and creates his landscape. And that idea, and that also what makes man unique is in that process, the pride in the excellence of the expression of, you know, he would say the hand, but, you know, obviously the hand using a tool, right? Yep. And so he would say, uh, you know, the hand, meaning that tool holding hand is the cutting edge of the mind. Yep. And to me, the ethos you know, of what I'm doing today is how do you take and synthesize those inventions that we have? High-performance computing, AI, new materials, materialization through additive manufacturing, you know, yeah. uh, optics, automation, and combine them into a machine that allows man to, in the most efficient way, in the most creative way, in a way that uses biologic principles of dematerialization and closed looping, express those visions, you know, vision of creating in the world, that landscape, and do it in a way that is sustainable and in harmony of, with nature. Yeah. And so that, uh, and there, there's also, you know, an accompanying book, uh, but that, uh, I say that 13 part series, which probably if you go to YouTube, you know, parts are, are probably yeah. on YouTube, but that, that to me is probably had the most profound impact, uh, you know, and then if I were to say other books, there's a book called Materials in the Modern World by Vaclav Smil, the Vaclav subtitle Smil, yeah. is Dematerialization. Yeah. Now, Vaclav Smil, obviously, uh, you know, what I've had very productive discussions and correspondence with, you know, he's Bill Gates, kind of foremost guru. Yeah. But if you look at what his fundamental principle is, it's this is not about tailpipe exhaust or other things. It's about material and energy flows. 
and we need to dematerialize those energy uh, material and energy flows or else we will never have any sustainable system. Yep. Yep. Interesting. Um, I, I, I know I'll have my 10 year old watching that set of uh, videos uh, for sure. Uh, so a couple of questions have been coming in here. Sure. Um, be, before we do that, let me just quickly, uh, the one question that was asked earlier via text is, uh, what, was, what does a Zinger C, a 21C cost me if I want one? And then uh, for the rest of us that I think that answer will be un exciting for, uh, they have this car, you have this one in the future, and then the SUV coming after that potentially. Um, and so those were the slides. So let me stop the slides. Uh, we'll get your, your thoughts on, uh, on cost, uh, potentially. And then I want to talk a little bit about, uh, there's a question about rare earths and scalability, et cetera, but let's, let's start with the, the, the dollars and cents angle. Sure. So that vehicle itself, which is, uh, you know, now we, we just announced we were going to do about 80 vehicles is almost sold out with reservation, <laughs> with uh, deposits. That really was, you know, a vehicle which was super limited edition that, you know, is a all wheel drive, strong hybrid, 1350 horsepower, 1235 kilogram vehicle, like significantly faster than a McLaren Senna GTR or the other Apex vehicles. You know, that is, uh, you know, that's a limited run of $2 million vehicles. Obviously, this technology itself is being used primarily for EV vehicles by other OEMs. You know, that brand is simply my, like, experimental test brand yep. that people within this luxury sports wow. area, you know, uh, you know, can buy vehicles. The technology broadly though, will be used first by large OEMs, and then it will completely break down the barrier to entry for small teams, because I'm essentially creating the AWS of manufacturing, meaning yep. I'm providing uh, through a cloud-based application, the design tools and database, obviously, which is constantly growing so that the team can generate the design then you know first here and then and, and europe in 2023 starting in 2023 we're going to build uh, uh factories with uh printer and assembly modules that are the equivalent of uh processing and storage for aws or say if you're a fabulous chip company you know we're like the uh, cadence that provides you with eda tools electronic design and uh, automation tools and the TSMC Taiwan Semiconductor, you know, you then design using these tools and then we build it. So yep. we're going to distribute that across the planet, starting with large OEMs. But over time, it will allow design teams to have to put up zero dollars for infrastructure upfront, which is obviously the barrier to manufacturing sure. and simply be able to design and have us build. Yep. And you know, that is really the model. And that's what, as it scales, will drive the cost performance curve for the overall system. I mean, Zinger itself, if you look, you know, the GT, and these are all zero emission vehicles. So I run them off of either, you know, battery or uh, e-fuel, zero emission e-fuels or a combination. Mm -hmm. You know, those are more in the 200 to $400,000 uh, gotcha. range as vehicles, but these are all, you know, Still very high-end luxury goods. The intent of that really is just to, you know, be the, you know, front face of the apex of this technology. Yep. Yep. So let's talk about something like rare earths, Kevin. So, you know, there, if there is a strategic competition for limited materials. There are no, there are no rare earths. No rare earths. designing this to do this for real mass manufacturing. Like this is a structure. Yep. These are the primary structures are mainly aluminum alloys, and they're all at a price point where there are when you're designing materials, if you want to really uh, do this for mass adoption in a closed loop, you're selecting a set of materials, obviously, that meet all of the requirements, yep. uh, uh, but and are printable 
and you know that are at a certain cost point. So none of these are rare uh, materials that are part of our alloys at all. And does that include batteries and some of the other materials that, I mean, obviously there, there's what I hear and I obviously don't know. Well, well, what I would say with batteries is uh, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I'm not building batteries and I'm not building EV motors. Hmm. Uh, you know, what I would say is, uh, and you know, this is each of these things is a very long discussion, which I, sure. don't <laughs> I realize I guess with, uh, but what I would say is that obviously, you know, every single policymaker, and I would say every single citizen in America should understand that uh, they may make super disastrous decisions if they don't start thinking about life cycle assessment now, and they don't look and go, how many, this is, this is the key metric. The key metric every single policymaker, every single citizen should know is kilograms per uh, of CO2 produced per kilowatt hour of battery. Gotcha. Kilograms of CO2 produced per kilowatt hour of battery. If you look, most of the factories in China are generating say 120 to 150 kilograms of CO2 per kilowatt hour. That will be the workshop of battery production in the foreseeable future. For you know, a car that has a decent range battery system, when you take that into account across life cycle analysis, it looks worse than an internal combustion engine vehicle. And how does that compare, Kevin, to like a Tesla? The T- Tesla has an even higher uh, it's uh, worse. average. It's worse. It, yeah, they, they, because they're trying to have long range with their battery system. Now, Tesla would say in our factory in Nevada, you know, we're only using, uh, you know, clean energy, obviously they buy credits and do different things. But when you're looking at the system or you're looking at where they're really scaling with CATL battery, it's in China. And I think, you know, we can't allow for sort of glib magical thinking. You need to actually look at the model and go, yeah. uh, you know, and I can say I had a major, major, major environmental guy whose main advisor, like put into my model, said, yeah, Kevin's model's right. But he put in like a 30 kilowatt hour battery car system, like a, a 2013 Nissan Leaf, which yeah. obviously had an 80 mile range. Yeah. When you're talking about a vehicle with a 300, 500 mile range, you're talking about over 100 kilowatt yeah. hours. Yeah. These longer range vehicles, you know, and I am not anti-EV. I drive a small EV every day, but you have to understand what happens when you scale with these things and have larger vehicles. And absolutely, it has an impact. I would say, beside understanding that metric, everybody should read. And if you just simply put it into Google, Goldman Sachs, EVs enter the LCA era, meaning starting for life cycle assessment. Yeah. Read page 14. Goldman Sachs research makes very clear what I just said. Yep. Yeah. Super well, clear. Anybody can find that. Well, what I, love, what I love, Kevin, is so in my book, the quote you gave me is how we make our cars is actually a bigger environmental issue than how we fuel our cars, um, which I think captures the essence of it, right? Which is that's a big part of it. But if you capture in the whole thing, the recycling part of it, turns into a bigger issue also. Otherwise you're gonna be mining and constantly sure. getting more materials, so. And, and you have to also, you know, look at reality versus, you know, if these things are actually gonna all be scaled up in China, the real scale, how are it, is it gonna be powered? What's the real emissions? Not like I can create some magical model or, oh yes, we can, you know, recycle lithium ion batteries, you know, since when? Like lots of companies are now trying to do it. And then you look at people putting in very small batteries that don't have the range for something into a model, but, you know, getting policymakers to go, oh, look, it's a 30 kilowatt hour battery. It only has this emission and, oh, we make it completely clean in Nevada, not in, you know, CATL and in Shenzhen. And then, you know, oh, we're able to completely recycle it. Yeah. And you look at that and uh, you go, not really. Policymakers <laughs> may end up building a machine 
which is designed to, with a step change, accelerate the destruction of the planet, period. So it's fascinating because I think one of the things that we've talked about in the past, one surefired way for us to destroy the planet is to mass adopt electric vehicles that are produced in this other way. If everyone bought a Tesla in America today, we'd crush the environment. I would say, you know, first of all, I don't want to use Tesla at all right. or anybody yeah. else. I'm, I'm brand agnostic. I'm technology agnostic. I would say you need to have that model. You need to put in like a vehicle with a range that has a really usable battery and understand what size that is. Understand that you pay for having a 200 kilowatt hour pickup truck, right? Like that's massive environmental damage, right? And understand yeah. where the batteries are actually going to be built, right? Yeah. You know, you, as we all know, you know, you can like change the levers of a model to get your result. Mm-hmm. And we can't have like ridiculous misleading assumptions. First, we have to use an LCA, LCA model. The second is we can't have magical assumptions put in simply to serve you know, a brand or a technology. We need to be brand and technology agnostic. And yep. yes, if you scale 100 kilowatt hour battery electric vehicles with batteries coming from China, given the fuel mix there, you will massively accelerate the destruction of the planet. Yep. So Kevin, do you worry about this US-China rivalry and how this may impact uh, the sort of outlook for, for manufacturing and or electric vehicles, uh, given the way you're talking about them and the sort of supply? Yes, I think, I think that, uh, you know, first of all, you know, we need to be real about how to look at things, meaning you need to look at it on a system-wide basis, right? If you look at only one part of it, you know, we're, we're a spaceship Earth, right? You know, CO2 that is generated in China manufacturing something, you know, is, you know, is going to impact us if we live in the US, right? So we need to look at that system. Then we need to simplify it for policymakers and citizens to understand, here's a basic two metrics. What's the size of the battery system? What are the kilograms of CO2 produced per kilowatt hour of that battery produced? And how does that match an apples to apples vehicle with a different technology? Mm -hmm. What I would add to it is we should also be diverse in our approaches. We shouldn't be captured by brands and lobbyists. We need to be driven by facts. And if you look, for example, one of the interesting things that I've been talking about it for years, is that you can take renewable power, absorb CO2 from the atmosphere, combine it with hydrogen, and basically turn renewables into a liquid that any of these cars outside can use as a fuel, use as methanol. And that is a zero emission uh, cycle. We should look at all of these things because that's a drop-in technology. And when people say it's expensive now, when I started working on batteries, they were $1,500 a kilogram or, or kilowatt hour, uh, $1,500 a kilowatt hour. It's now 100, right? Okay. If you look, the US itself, beside having the created the technology for e-fuels, right? After all, Porsche and Siemens are using ExxonMobil's tech, right? Uh, you uh, could take nat gas-based methanol which is about 50% of the cost on an energy equivalent to gasoline today and create that as a bridge. You use the, you know, as it starts to scale, you'll use more and more of the, uh, you know, e-fuel part of the mix, but you can use nat gas now to bridge the cost. And we have plenty of nat gas and it's going to continue to be uh, uh, produced but use that as a bridge and drop it into existing infrastructure, drop it into existing vehicles and forget the multi-trillion dollar scale up of mining uh, and all of these other things. But what what I would say is maybe somebody can figure out how to make all of these different pieces work in the EV world. I drive a small EV, I drive a Chevy Bolt each day to, to work. 
you know, I wouldn't buy a large uh, format uh, battery vehicle. Uh, but what I would say is our policymakers, if they don't wrap their minds around this and they're not science-based, if they're captured by lobbyists, you know, the 21st century will, will be known for having destroyed the man, destroying the biodiversity of the planet. Yeah, well, let, let, let's hope we don't end up down that path. But uh, so, Kevin, we, we basically run through time here. I really appreciated your time. Uh, thank you for sharing the story. Uh, it's inspirational. It's exciting. It's, uh, it, it's super uh, positive and optimistic. I think that there are ways forward. Uh, the work you're doing is, is really great. Uh, I, I don't think I'm alone in thinking this. <laughs> Obviously, Google and others have awarded you all sorts of prizes for that. Uh, and, uh, and so thank you. Uh, and thanks for taking the time today. Um, I will, uh, of course, prepare this and post it and uh, all that good stuff. And I'll put some links to some videos so people can see uh, what it is you're actually doing there uh, on this amazing uh, project you've done. So thank you. Okay. Hey, th thanks, Vikram. No, we right. really appreciated talking to you. All right. Thanks, Kevin. We'll talk again soon. Thanks. Okay. Right. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. And please do subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. 